2: Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca podcast, coming to you from the fourth annual Next China Conference. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee is the man who convinced the Trump legal team to hold their Saturday press conference at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, well played, sir, well played. And uh, please <laughs> greet the people, won't you?
3: <laughs> lawn and order, lawn and order.
2: <laughs> yes, lawn and order, absolutely. I thought about changing my backdrop that so many other people have. But uh, anyway, Jeremy, no thanks to either of our states, Tennessee or North Carolina. Joe Biden has won the White House. The U.S. will rejoin the the Paris Agreement and may embrace some version of a Green New Deal. Global cooperation on limiting carbon emissions may finally become the priority for the U.S. uh, that it should have been all along. Uh, so lots to be thankful for. That's uh, your but, uh,
3: sunny American optimism uh, speaking. Yeah. Of course, you know, there's going to be a military coup and none of that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, coup cool
2: or not, environmentalists should probably hold off on popping the corks because, you know, we're, we're far from out of the woods. Uh, there's another massive variable in all of that. And that, of course, is China.
3: Xi Jinping may have promised at the UN General Assembly that China's emissions will peak by 2030 and that the country will achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. But the fact remains that China, the world's largest carbon emitter, has a long, long way to go to achieve either of these goals. It'll be made even more difficult by Xi's renewed focus on bolstering domestic consumption, the dual circulation we're hearing about, will encourage the same meat-consuming and car-owning lifestyles that Westerners have long enjoyed, and of course by China's push to build infrastructure around the world under the auspices of the Belt and Road Initiative. China's ambitions are energy intensive and are problematic even without the ghastly number of coal-fired power, plant, uh, power plants in the plants.
2: Uh, even so, you can't overlook uh, the real accomplishments that China has made in addressing not only global warming, but, but other long-neglected ecological concerns from air, uh, and water, and soil pollution to protecting biodiversity. Uh, many have concluded and not maybe without reason, that these improvements have been possible only because of the intervention of the powerful Chinese state, that China's authoritarianism, at least when it comes to the environment, is relatively enlightened authoritarianism, and that working through its heavily technocratic bureaucracy, it can implement long-term strategies to enact policies that in the short term are, are quite painful and very unpopular. So it's this argument this case for China's environmental authoritarianism that is interrogated masterfully in a new book by Ifei Li and Judith Shapiro, our guests today. The book is called China Goes Green, Coercive Environmentalism for a Troubled Planet. And we are delighted to be joined by both authors. Ifei Li is assistant professor of environmental studies at NYU Shanghai. And he comes to us from Shanghai, actually, at a ridiculously late hour. So thank you so much, Ifei. Welcome to Seneca and congrats on the book.
0: Thank you, Kaiser and Jeremy, for inviting me out here.
3: Judith Shapiro is Chair of the Global Environmental Politics Program and Director of the Masters in Natural Resources and Sustainable Development at American University. She was amongst the early batch of American students to live and study in China beginning in the late 1970s, and that's a tiny, tiny, tiny group of people. Uh, Judith is also the author of numerous books on modern China. Judith, welcome to Seneca.
1: So happy to be here.
2: Yeah, Judy, I I, I certainly agree with you uh, when you write that this debate over state-led environmentalism may be one of the most pressing conversations of our time. Uh, You begin your book, uh, maybe not surprisingly, uh, by framing the issue with reference to this idea of the tragedy of the commons, which features in, I think, all of the arguments favoring some kind of environmental authoritarianism. Um, a more sort of uh, state-led approach. This idea, of course, that when something is everyone's responsibility, it simply, tragically, becomes no one's responsibility. So how does the tragedy of the commons get deployed by supporters of this state-led approach, and how do those opposing it answer back?
1: Hmm. The impetus for our book was precisely that we felt that many people Um, people were getting frustrated with democracies, that democracies were not stepping up to the plate because perhaps of this tragedy of the commons. But there's an element of the tragedy of the commons that we feel is absolutely essential if China indeed is going to wield its environmental authoritarianism in a benign way. And that is that this coercion that Garrett Hardin wrote about must be mutually agreed coercion. And that's what we're not seeing in China. So often, this state-led environmentalism seems to be furthering goals that the state had anyway, pacifying the borders, uh, getting better control of the movements of individuals, um, reading people's irises and getting their social credit scores more um, refined, um, and so on and so forth. So um, Ife and I wanted together to really um, investigate what this coercive state-led environmentalism look like on the ground and we found many examples of successes but we also found many examples of failures and that's what we wanted to talk with you a bit about today um
3: ife you write at one point counterintuitively the success of state-led environmentalism hinges not on a strong state but mechanisms that place state power in check Uh, Can you explain what is meant by this? Is this related to the idea of agreed-upon coercion that Judy just mentioned? Uh, I mean, the the point is, as
0: you say, rather counterintuitive. Right, Jeremy. Yes, indeed. That relates very much to what Judy just said about this notion of mutually agreed-upon coercion. Because, as Judy alluded to, we have success stories as well as failures in the book, But when we examine the actual reasons why some of the stories became success stories, we realized that it was really moments when the Chinese state remained open to various kinds of non-state inputs, whether they're from independent scientists or filmmakers or journalists or um, NGOs from both within and outside China. Whenever these voices are being adequately accounted for in the policymaking process and whenever Chinese state actors fully sensitized themselves from these inputs from outside of the state. They became better able to implement environmental policies. They became even better able to envision various kinds of environmental approaches in the country to an extent that made not only environmental sense, but also made sense uh, from the perspective of people's livelihoods and from the perspective of even economic development. And as such, we think it's just so important for the Chinese state to remain open to these other inputs because for many of the failures that we document in the book, uh, these stories became failures precisely because the state chose not to engage with many of these other non-state actors.
2: That's a theme that uh, definitely reminds me of the book Seeing Like a State uh, by James Scott. Uh, at various points while I was, I was reading the book, I was just overcome with this suspicion that this isn't really just a book about different approaches to addressing environmental challenges, though that's its obvious focus. Uh, you could say that it's an examination maybe more broadly of the whole approach of technocratic authoritarianism, of top-down planning would that be fair to say that this is just sort of a case study uh, that's used and and you know very you know you you, you offer a whole lot of, of very granular detail but the the broader point is one about technocratic authoritarianism
1: mm. the state is our protagonist and we have been influenced <laughs> by James Scott it's true um, okay. but we so. <laughs> but but both Ife and I work on the environment i consider myself an environmentalist and you know one of the reasons another of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is that I've been so offended by over the last couple of decades, really, the state's use of environmental arguments to carry out repressive policies, Mm. vis-a-vis nomadic people in the western part of China, vis-a-vis building big dams um, that displace thousands of people. Um, And now along the Belt and Road, you know, green Belt and Road, win-win green development. And yet, There's an export of um, carbon that's going on, even as habitat is carved up with high speed rail, uh, deep water ports, more big dams and so on and so forth. So the environmentalist in me gets really upset that ecological migration is not about preserving the grasslands, but it's about um, controlling the people.
0: Yeah, um, I, I I certainly agree that uh, we sort of, we discuss environmental governance in China, and we certainly want um, this discussion about environmental governance to uh, signal some bigger structural problems and perhaps opportunities as well with the Chinese political system. But at the same time, we want to emphasize that environmental protection has unique significance for the Chinese state. For them, whenever they say ecological civilization... um, Observers seem to have the tendency to just dismiss that as just yet another propagandist's invention out of China. And yet we don't think we should be so ready to just dismiss ecological civilization out of hand. Because from the perspective of the Chinese state, they are very much envisioning the Chinese Communist Party as a a major political actor that seeks to restore China's former glory before the Opium War. Um, And and it's right, China has every right to think that prior to the arrival of the British imperial forces, China was indeed a major civilizational player on the surface of the planet. And now, since the Chinese Communist Party wants to rejuvenate, quote-unquote, the Chinese civilization back to that former glory, they're also saying that they're not just building any random kind of civilizational leadership. They're building a very specific kind um, that is a kind uh, that's ecological in quality. So notions like ecological civilization speaks to a core imperative on the part of the Chinese Communist Party, to do something that's great for the world, to show a unique kind of leadership for the world. And as such, I think it's great that they've picked ecological civilization as this new mantra. The fact that environmental protection occupies such a central role in the Chinese state's vision for the country um, is is something that really makes environmental areas a unique um, area for policymaking in a contemporary um, Chinese circumstance.
2: Absolutely. Uh, the book is broadly, I mean, it's it's a real. I think it's it's a very s- skeptical uh, and uh, critical examination of of these technocratic approaches. Uh, but I think that they the, the bolsters of of those the supporters of that approach have probably been given a bit of a jolt uh, in recent months because of the debate over uh covid-19 and covid-19 responses i think we've seen a lot of people talk about how uh maybe the state power should be uh wielded maybe more forcefully to address problems of enormous public concern especially when it's clear in, enough that left to their own devices um you know people you know the wisdom of the, the people sometimes can produce pretty unfortunate consequences like you know these uh what i call the 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 branch COVIDiots with their um, maskless protests, Uh, are the uh, environmental and and public health issues, things that you would approach similarly? Do you think that the critique applies just the same or are they quite different situations calling for for different approaches?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, China's COVID response mechanism um, or it's, its response strategies in general have given the world sort of an opportunity to reevaluate how China has been doing in terms of managing its public health crises and environmental challenges in general. I think you're absolutely right. But we should also remember how uh, COVID initially as an epidemic broke out in China. It was precisely because the local officials were so fearful of their bureaucratic superiors that they were suppressing information, um, that they they didn't want any of the information to get out. They were um, also uh, putting the doctors in jail, the doctors who initially were spreading the information about uh, some of the initial confirmed cases. So I think we need to be sensitive to how all of this started uh, from the get-go. And it was that very moment when the Chinese, they decided that they wanted to close themselves off. They didn't want non-state actors to even get access to the very basic level of information that really led to uh, the initial outbreak in Wuhan. But one of the things we should also absolutely recognize is that uh, as soon as the Chinese state turned around, as soon as they realized that this initial epidemic was already on route to become one of the largest public health crises in China and even for the world, they then began... Um, to implement a transparent system of of information, a a, a system of immediate, decisive interventions into uh, the pandemic transmission uh, mechanism. And that level of decisiveness coupled with a transparent mechanism, coupled with a general openness to professional inputs from medical doctors. Um, was really the reason that uh, underpinned uh, very much the success of Chinese pandemic controls in in the later months of the pandemic. Mm
2: -hmm. So it really does confirm what you've argued, yeah.
1: Yeah, if I can just add, we praise decisiveness in some instances. And one thing that happened after we finished the book is that the Chinese state has apparently banned those little plastic shampoo bottles that are distributed in hotels. That's great. You know, yay. I wish that the Trump administration would ban those little plastic, (laughs) you know. Um, But, you know, they haven't really effectively banned the wet markets that were also the source of the COVID transmission. That's a big... Eating wild animals is a big part of traditional Chinese medicine. It's part of Chinese adventuresome gastronomy. And yet, you know, the state hasn't um, worked as decisively in that area. An example, though, of a wildlife trade... um, case where we've seen that kind of level of public participation that we're talking about is um, with respect to the shark fin case. And in the shark fin case, you know, you see the state working hand in hand with wild aid and the basket player Yao Ming and, um, you know, banning shark fin soup from party banquets and all that, that has really turned this around. The, The market for shark fin is, you know, plunged. So it's fantastic. So sometimes the state does a great job, and sometimes the state doesn't do a great job. And so I think our book is, um, actually, in an earlier conversation, Kaiser, you once said, maybe people who think coercive environmentalism is good would get bolstered from this book, and maybe people who think that coercive environmentalism is bad would get bolstered from this book. Yeah, it's a Rorschach test. I try to be a little little bit even-handed in our um, approach.
3: I I should say at this point, I think that uh, despite the title of the book, China Goes Green, uh, which led me to think that this was kind of some kind of sop to the Communist Party, and it was all going to be like nice words about ecological civilization. It is a very critical book you don 't pull your punches when it, it comes to uh, talking about the real issues, but uh, Judy, you just mentioned again coercive environmentalism, this very important concept in the book. Could you talk a little bit about how it actually works in China? You know what are the specific mechanisms of state power that pass regulations and actually enforce them, especially perhaps with the context that the old Ministry of Environmental Protection, uh, you know, the joke uh, amongst journalists was that uh, it was uh, the weakest uh, Chinese government department after the foreign ministry. Uh, in other <laughs> words, it had absolutely no power at all. Yeah. Um, but we're, si- we're seeing something rather different now, I believe, uh, with yeah. the reorganization and the creation of what is it now, the MEE, the Ministry of the Ecology and the Environment. Hmm.
1: Yeah, what we did in the book was actually identify a series of tools and techniques that the state uses in different parts of the country. And one of the state's favorite tools and techniques is um, campaigns and target setting. And you see that quite dramatically in the developed eastern part of the country, but it also uh, also to a lesser extent in the western part of the country. So one example is there'll be, I don't know, you know, some APEC blue meeting, or a parade blue meeting, or the 2008 Olympics, so we've got to get the sky blue, so everybody like, you know, shut down everything, and a lot of innocent, you know, vulnerable people may lose a lot of money in that case. Um, Two summers ago in Hunan province, there was a campaign to reach a certain air pollution target, And the local officials were so afraid that they wouldn't meet that target that they banned the use of threshing machines. And so all the grain rotted in the fields. And the farmers, you know, I mean, this was an artificial spike in the reading. It wasn't really, quote unquote, air pollution. It was grain floating around in the air. So this is the kind of silliness that sometimes happens when you set this kind of um, campaign style of... um, technique. Uh, in Shanghai, Yifei has a whole story about how they instituted a recycling system, but they only gave these busy, sophisticated people two hours a day to come bring their recyclables, and then they would be inspected in a certain way, and it was very complicated what was wet and what was dry and what was mixed, and they didn't explain any of it. And as a result, the, the people were disgusted, and they like brought all their trash and threw it by the side of the road or took it into work. So you had this kind of... Um, very poor outcome in that case. Um, we identified a bunch more, we don't have time for it, but um, you know, even mastering the weather, like putting up silica, silver iodide machines on the Tibetan plateau to make it rain whenever the monsoon comes up from India and putting tens of thousands of these machines up there to try to deal with the glacier melt that is um, so threatening for Um, basically the aquifers and for sea level rise in general for climate change. Um, And now I just read today, actually, that they're also wrapping the glaciers. This is a new technique. You wrap it up like, you know, (laughs) don't don't melt, don't melt, don't (laughs) melt, you know. So this kind of like geoengineering thing, again, it's it's a technocratic, I don't know, failure to deal with the root causes of the issue, to my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it could have... Effects that nobody knows, because when you're changing the climate on the Tibetan Plateau, who knows? You know what that could be in the long run.
2: We heard in an earlier panel today at, at the next China conference about uh, some of the you know the, the, the good things, for example, uh, making uh, as as Julie Hess talked about uh, the. KPIs reflect uh, carbon reductions. Uh, can we talk about that, that? Where does that come from? Uh, is that something that the MEE can can I- implement or does that come directly from the State Council or uh, from the Politburo Standing Committee?
0: Uh, My understanding is that uh, came out of the uh, the National Reform and Development Commission. Oh, NRDC. Oh, great, great.
2: Um, They were supposedly toothless too now, but apparently they're not.
0: We'll see, I guess. Um, But one of the things about those targets, I think, uh, is is, is, like Judy alluded to, that's one of the tools that we describe in the book. But we should be sensitive to the fact that these targets uh, oftentimes sound very, very nice. Um, but in the actual process of implementation, they could go awry, and they oftentimes do go awry. One of the cases sure. we documented was the trans, uh, was the transition from traditional sources of heat uh, heating to uh, natural gas um, back in the winter of twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen. One of the issues back then was that the central government uh, put together a target to evaluate all of these local officials just by looking at how much natural gas conversion rate They could pursue in that winter alone. And because it was such a high level target that came from not only the NDRC, but also from multiple other uh, ministerial level agencies in Beijing, the local officials were very much frightened. And they did everything that they could to try and convert as many households as they can, as many factories as they can, to a point that all of the local officials over enforced. That target, mm. um, they were supposed to convert, let's say, ten thousand households, but they all did twenty or even more households across the board. The extent of over enforcement was something like two hundred percent or even more. Um, now that may sound great from an environmental perspective if everybody just all of a sudden switch to natural gas, which supposedly produces less carbon and also less toxins into the atmosphere. But the problem back then was. China simply didn't have enough natural gas to supply to all of these households and factories. Um, when local officials over-enforced a central government target to such an extent, it literally left the people of northern China in the code. I live in Shanghai, and we don't have centralized heating, but I've also lived in Beijing, and I know how the winter could be brutal um, when these... <laughs> Seemingly uh, environmental, seemingly well-intended targets are implemented in the way that the Chinese um, state is accustomed to, um, it sometimes go awry and, and the consequences of going awry can be very, very significant for the people of China
2: indeed uh, your book argues that Beijing has used environmentalism as a means of exerting control and addressing a host of what it sees as societal ills that aren't directly related to the environment uh, but I-, I wonder how we can sort of tweeze these things apart because by the time she started moving really a aggressively on environmental measures China was already well into uh, an illiberal turn and one that would you know turn out to be quite deep and and, and long lasting uh, China under XI as we know has been much more domestically repressive stepped up internet censorship has cracked down on the constitutional movement and other forms of dissent up and we've saw, we saw even the beginnings of the carceral state in Xinjiang already taking form in 2013 2014 so it's hard for me to to pick apart what aspects of coercion were already present and which ones actually did, as you say, piggyback on environmental authoritarianism. How, how do you guys pick pick that apart? Is it, is it hard for you as well?
0: Yeah, I, I, I'd say indeed. I mean, one of the things we try to emphasize is how environmental protection is being used as a pretext or perhaps an excuse to further intensify that goal uh-huh. of citizen control and, and, and authoritarian penetration into citizen lives. Um, and, and, and sort of an overarching goal of the book is to say that our focus is on environmental policies, but we also want to want to want to be very clear that environmental policies often do have non-environmental consequences. Um, in, in 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 the cases that we examined in the book, domestically in the industrial East. We're finding that environmental policies are being used to further all kinds of surveillance goes and citizen control goes, installing facial recognition cameras on your recycling bins to make sure that you're doing recycling exactly according to the specification of the Chinese state, or in the western borderlands of China. Once again, environmental policies in national parks are being used as justification for relocating ethnic minority groups into urban centers, even though that they are accustomed to nomadic ways of life and, the, 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 and oops, Judith, can,
3: can, can I just jump in and ask you specifically about that? Ju- Judith, you'd actually already mentioned this, but one of your chapters actually focuses specifically on how environmental authoritarianism works on China's borderlands, where you have afforestation efforts and renewable energy projects, but you also have the forced settlement of pastoral peoples and many other horrors like the mass internments, the concentration camps in Xinjiang. Can you give us some examples of how seemingly benign projects on the Chinese borderlands can actually have a nasty dark side?
1: Well, they have a nasty dark side for the nomads who aren't allowed to pursue their nomadic way of life anymore. It's very much like what happened in the United States, in America, um, vis-a-vis the Native Americans. This kind of forcible relocation into marginal lands, give them a couple of dollars, give them like a flat with... A flush toilet and ask them to be grateful when it actually ends up being the end of a whole culture. And so, um, you know, there, I've read a bunch of things about how they say that these certain animals with sharper hooves, goats and sheep, are more damaging in some way to the grasslands than cows. And so they would rather see sort of industrial um, feedlots with those cows. I'm making hooves here. Um, <laughs> then, you know, the the animals that are running around tearing up the grasslands. But it's the same insanity around the pica. You know about the pica? It's this cute little marmot that um, burrows. It's a little bit like the gopher in the western part of the United States. And the state has decided to use rodentitone. I don't know if that's the word. There's a, 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 a rodent killer that's... And in fact, these these animals are creating a kind of a sponge, which is actually very positive as far as water retention and all of that. Um, so the scientists who have studied these pikas are really upset by this misunderstanding of a basic ecological contribution that's being made by these animals. We didn't write about that in the book. But um, yeah, so I, I think right now, as China is creating the biggest national park in the world, this uh, Sanjiang Yuan, um, Park, there's a lot of question about whether all of those people are really going to be forced to re- locate outside of the borders in a fortress conservation model or whether they'll be more of a buffer zone kind of a model. Right now, they're saying it's going to be more of a buffer zone and they're looking for um, one member of every household to sort of serve as the eyes and ears of the anti poachers. But there's a lot of anxiety um, right now among those people in this enormous area. But meanwhile, Western observers, you know, the National Geographic is ecstatic, you know, biggest national park in the world, bigger than Yellowstone and Yosemite combined. So we just have to watch this, you know, let's see what the implementation looks like on the ground.
2: It's Yosemite. It, it rhymes with Vegemite, according to our, our, seem to be ex-president. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, your, your, your chapter on China's global footprint focuses quite a bit on, of course, as it should, the Belt and Road Initiative. I've been on, I don't know, can't lost count of how many panels I've been on, uh, either as a participant or a moderator on the subject of the environmental impact of the of the BRI. And one thing that always strikes me, and I don't think this is really well understood, is the limited control over individual projects that Beijing actually has. Uh, and this is something you talk about in your book as well. So that even if the MEE or State Council doesn't like the carbon footprint or the pollution or the harm to the biodiversity of a given project, it can't necessarily. Do much about it. Can you talk, expand on that a little bit, and, and suggest ways that uh, these SOEs can be, you know, brought to heel when they do these things? And how much of it is push, how much of it is pull? Right. Um...
1: Well, there's a lot of efforts um, overseas to educate, if you will, the SOEs um, to try to persuade them through various consultative mechanisms and even through lawsuits that if they don't properly consider. Um, social and environmental impacts of these. In the long run, it's gonna be problematic. I've led some practicums with my students. We looked at mining in Peru, and there were some mines that were shut down for years on end because of labor disputes, you know? But I think what the Chinese investors are confused by is since they're not used to a whole lot of community consultation at home, they think that if the state, you know, agrees to some project, that they can just come in and do it. And then they find out, oh, wait a minute, there were indigenous rights in this area, or, you know, this is a violation of this or that. And then they're, they're genuinely, they use the word hurt, they feel hurt, you know, huh. they were, they were going to do something good. And now the people are mad at them. Why is that, you know, so there's a very, very, they've got a learning curve to go along. And I think they are on that learning curve. Um, and also, I think, that local Chinese NGOs domestic NGOs have their hands full with domestic issues but more and more they are starting to turn their eyes overseas almost as a face thing right if China gets a, a reputation for making sort of bad projects and not listening to local people that's going to harm you know their goal their goal their global um, um, reputation so I think there's some progress um, but you know we also hear lots of stories of Belt and Road projects being rethought or resisted or um, you know, renegotiated or maybe just canceled outright. Belt and Road is nuts, you know, it's not just like around the Indian Ocean and across the, it's the polar Belt Belt and Road and the outer space Belt and Road. Well, that's
3: a a good point to ask you, Judith. I I was very surprised to encounter that chapter about China's ambitions that are even, you know, even bigger global ambitions. You've already mentioned geoengineering. Uh, but there's, uh, you also talk about China's ambitions beyond Earth to what China has planned for outer space. Can you talk about that a little
0: bit?
2: I'm afraid this has to be our last question because okay. we we're at time. But.
1: So give it to Yifei. I
0: mean, one, one of the things we have to recognize is that uh, all of the environmental initiatives outside of China are uh, very much being dominated by technocratic officials in the Chinese state, the state-owned enterprises, and also a lot of top-level officials who are engineers, who were trained as engineers. So whenever we look at these exports, whether they're on a Belt and Road or whether they're interventions in outer space, we think you know one of the most pivotal characteristics of these projects is that they have a very clear technocratic taste or a technocratic flavor to their, to these developments. Um, China is very much, uh, Kaiser, you were absolutely right in pointing out that the Belt and Road Initiative uh, isn't really anything that's so centrally coordinated. There are many, many state-owned enterprises that are involved, many, many uh, uh, banks, um, whether directly state-owned or partially state-owned that get involved. So as such, you couldn't say that there is necessarily a, a unifying theme that gets implemented everywhere, and yet, um, if you look at all of these uh, Chinese state proclamations for what they want to what they want to achieve on the Belt and Road, I think it's very clear that they want it to be green. They want it to uh, promote a kind of, quote-unquote, win-win development. China wants these projects to succeed. China wants to play a major global leadership role in facilitating the transfer of technologies, the transfer of goods, and all of, you, uh, all, all, all of that. Um, but at the same time, I think the problem is that, uh, like Judy alluded to, they're not accustomed to soliciting inputs from non-state actors. Um, right. they're, they're, they, they aren't producing the kind of wing-wing that they've envisioned. But to get there, one of the things that they really have to begin to do is to open themselves up to non-state inputs, not only domestically, but also internationally, if global leadership is indeed what, uh, something that they want.
2: Yifei Li, Judith Shapiro, congrats on an excellent book. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Again, the book is called China Goes Green, Coercive Environmentalism for a Troubled Planet. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time for joining us on the Seneca Podcast. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.